All right, uh, so we're going to start the second <clears throat> part of the presentation. Uh, like I said, this change, this massive change in the church didn't happen overnight, but was something very gradual and took a lot of time. And it was something that um, th- there, were, there were a lot of things that I had to endure uh, with it. And so I wrote down a list of nine things or so that I... I, I did to some degree. I wish I could do better. Uh, have gone back. This, if if a pastor came up to me or somebody came up to me looking for advice, this is probably the advice I would give them. So, but just some things I learned along the way. Uh, the first thing I would say is this: is to if if you're in a situation like this, whatever it might be, is to prioritize your family. Um, make that the priority. Uh, This is important, especially for pastors. You have to be faithful to the call, your call as a pastor, as um, uh, the the leader of the church there. But if you are married and have children, you also need to be faithful to your wife and children. And the reality is that congregations can have many, many pastors. but your wife has one husband and your children have one father. And that's where the priority needs to go. I look back at times, you know, um, not just spending time with them, but carrying things home, bringing things home, the stress of things, letting it eat at me and uh, bringing it home. And uh, now I can't get away from it, right? I've, I've created an environment where um, I'm, I'm living in this all the time. <clears throat> so the thing is, you, you have to prioritize them. Don't drag them into it. Into it. Uh, if you love them, if you love your wife, leave her out of a lot of this stuff, a lot of the fights and, and things that are happening. Uh, there's a lot of stresses and things that come with it. Um, but you, as the, the, the father, as the husband, are there to protect them and reassure them in this. Um, I think one of the best things to do especially when there's issues of finances and stuff like this, is to teach your family not to worry, not to worry about what they're going to wear or what they're going to eat um, or tomorrow. Uh, teach them and remind them of their daily bread that God has promised to give them. He, he tells us to pray for it in the Lord's Prayer because precisely, uh, precisely because he's going to give us daily bread. And we are here thanking him uh, for that. So, Again, it's, it's a danger to then, when you're worried as a pastor or you're anxious about things, to then throw your whole family into a panic and, and worry in that way. Rather, you, you take it easy. You read the, uh, the scriptures, Matthew 6. You read um, all of these verses in the scriptures. Be anxious about nothing, nothing. And you teach them to do the same. And you say, don't worry. God will provide for us. And he has promised to give us daily bread. Um, it may be less than what we're used to. It may not be or taste as good, but it is daily bread. We're alive. Uh, he's given us what we need. Um, so some ideas on this, just practical tips, is setting a strong boundary on your days off and saying, hey, this is my day off and I need to be with my family. I'm with your guys' families all week, um, but this is my day off and my kids 
only have one father and I need to be with him. My wife has one husband. I, I need to be with her. Um, a good thing too is like silencing your phone at home. There's a lot of features on the phones now that if there's an emergency, somebody calls multiple times, it'll take it off and, and ring. Um, so that's another thing. Don't burden the family with uh, church problems. Um, you, you also don't want to, I don't know, mar the church in their minds. You don't want to tell them bad things about the congregation because that's what they're going to grow up with thinking and they're going to become resentful of that. Um, another thing too, this is important and I know it's tricky as pastors too, but date your wife. You're married, but keep dating her. And that is so, so important. One of the difficulties when you do have children is finding someone to watch your children. Most pastors aren't pastors where they are uh, or where they grew up or where their family is. So it's very difficult to find someone to watch their children. So this is where members of the congregation can step up and really help by offering to watch the children, just thinking of the pastor and saying, hey, uh, I get to live near my family, but my pastor doesn't. My pastor doesn't get to sit with his family in church and just hold the hymnal with his sons and teach them how to sing the liturgy. He doesn't get to do that. Um, So he's missing out a lot of on on a lot of these things. Also holidays. He works every holiday. (laughs) That was a tough pill for me to swallow and something I realized later. But yeah, every Christmas, I was like, I'm stressed out. Every Easter, I'm anxious. Well, I'm working those days. You know, my wife is incredibly supportive, super helpful, completely understands that. Um, but I think it's good for members to remember that, that uh, you see your pastor on Easter, and it's a great Sunday, but he has been laboring all week just for that service and for that sermon. So helping him find days, keeping his days off, off, and uh, helping him date his wife is a great thing uh, by, by watching the children or, or helping in these ways. So, uh, yeah, like I said before, if, if you do then become uh, a bad father or a bad husband, your wife and children will only grow to resent the church, and it's, it's a sad thing. Uh, so that's the first point, is to prioritize your family. That is important. That is the priority. Uh, the second thing here is to talk to brother pastors. Uh, certainly you have your, the, the people who are near you geographically. So you have your circuit and your district gatherings, and they may help depending on which district or circuit you, you're in. <laughs> um, sometimes they don't help because of the the circumstances. Um, So that's one resource. But the other is this, is your theological brothers, the brothers you are close to theologically, uh, those with with whom you agree in these ways. You you need that support and you need to be around them and you need to be in constant conversation with them. So for example, um, not every circuit is the same. Not every pastor in every circuit is the same. Not every district is the same. Uh, there, there's a lot of variance here. But what you need to do is f- go and seek out uh, brothers who you do agree with and other church uh, members, uh, church organists, uh, church workers, that you do have a common goal. So, for example, 
in my own circuit, uh, this is an anecdote, I, I had an issue of cohabitation in the congregation that I had to deal with. And I went and asked the pastor in my own circuit, uh, hey, how, do you, how did you deal with this when, you, when this was an issue for you? And he didn't. <laughs> he didn't deal with it. He says, you're making, this is too big of a deal. The times have changed. You got to keep up with it. That's, it's not a problem. So there it was, I mean, it was completely worthless and useless advice. It was a wasted uh, amount of time with that. Um, rather, I found pastors who were in Iowa who were faithful and they gave me good advice. And they told me, hey, this is, this is what you ought to do. And this is some helpful things. Um, so find, find those people. Don't just think that just because you're in a circuit with them that you're in theological agreement. You can't just assume theology. It has to be confessed. Um, so now, nowadays, more than ever, you can talk to brother pastors uh, better than ever before. You have the phone, you have email, you have text, uh, all these sort of things. Um, it's good to get input from many people from many pastors, but what I found that was especially helpful for me was getting input from a few select pastors whom, uh, who you're close to. So good, faithful friends. And, and the reason for that is so that you don't have to recount the story every single time you have that conversation. So I think a, a good number of my friends, the people that I know, know generally about Zion. I can list two of them who know almost everything about Zion and the details. And those are ones who've, whom I've called on the phone and said, hey, here's this situation. They know all of the details and they, it, you can kind of pick up with the story later. Um, where if I'm explaining it to someone else, I have to restart it every time and I get bored of my own story. So it's frustrating. So anyway, find somebody who knows that. Uh, one, one of those pastors is uh, Pastor Wright. Uh, who knows a lot more of the details of Zion than, than e even my own family does. Um, so keep that in mind. This is what we call the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. This is so important, incredibly important. Uh, this is in the, the small called articles, article uh, part three, article four on the gospel by Dr. Luther, he writes these words. He says, fourthly, through the power of the keys and also through the mutual conversation and consolation of brethren, Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together. So mutual conversation means that there's, it's a shared practice. It's performed by all Christians to one another. And, and the conversation means that it's normal to conversation. It's it's not that you have to find a certain method or way, but just coming up through normal conversation. Hey, what are you doing today? Uh, how are things going? Whatever. And then it grows from there. And so you have to seek out friends who, who will strengthen your faith in Christ and not ones who will weaken it. Right. So that one example I gave you, I talked to someone who ended up weakening uh, my faith, who ended up uh, giving me bad advice and... Um, I'm glad I, I knew not to take it, but some, there are some pastors who don't have any other option, right? So, so with that being said, we ought to seek that out. There are so many resources, so many people to talk to. Uh, another good thing with this is to attend good conferences like this one, uh, to go in person 
nothing replaces talking face to face. The the phone and texting is helpful, but it, but it's not the same. And you can have way more conversations in person um, about topics that wouldn't come up naturally through the phone. So attending that that uh, making time for that congregations can help by making sure their pastor goes to conferences to say it's been a year you've been here uh, you need to you need to get out you need to talk to go to a conference go to a convention go to something um, meet meet other pastors, talk with them. Uh, it's re-energizing and reinvigorating for pastors when they do that. Uh, when they go to a conference, they talk to other pastors, they console one another, they conversate, and they go back and they feel, oh, I, I feel like I could be a pastor for another 10 years, right, at this point. And that's a good thing. Uh, you want that. And so congregations can help by encouraging their pastors to do that, not only studying the scriptures, but talking to human beings. Um, yeah, one, very, by the way, just a comment here, one really good practical theology conference that I've been to uh, is the Bugenhagen Conference in Racine, Wisconsin. It's, it was amazing. It was very good. And that's only for pastors, but it was fantastic. Um, but there are many other good, good conferences for church workers and uh, even laymen just to attend. Um, another point within this point on, on seeking out other brother pastors to talk to, I think this is very important. Don't judge a pastor and a church for where they are, but judge them for where they're going, where they're headed, if that makes sense. <clears throat> Meaning, if you see a brother pastor and his church is riddled with like bad practices, don't just write him off and say, well, this guy, is, he's, he's an unfaithful pastor. No, there are things that he's inherited and that it's going to take time for him to work through. So don't just write him off and say, well, he inherited all these bad practices, therefore he's a bad pastor. No, uh, uh, Ask him, what are your intentions? Where are you going? Is it your goal to teach the liturgy? If it is, then I can deal with the contemporary worship for as long, not, not as long as it needs, but for a time, <laughs> for some time. Um, give me some time and, and, and I can bear with you and I can help you with this and, and I can encourage you through that. Uh, but uh, don't just say, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for the direction that the pastor is headed. Right? And that, you'll, you'll find many more brothers in, in that way too. Okay, so that's the second point. The third point is to uh, prioritize. Now, there's going to be plenty of issues in the church. They're endless, and it's going to happen until Christ returns. And it is impossible to address them all at the same time. So you have, there's no other option. You have to prioritize and say, I have to tackle this thing. This is the bigger thing. There's, there's many issues. This is the one I'm going after. Uh, now, with that, there are two kinds of problems. I think you can boil it down to this. There are two kinds of problems in the church. One, uh, the way you address these problems. Some problems are ones that you have to teach for a while and then change. And the other kind of problems are those that you have to change and then teach later. Uh, an example of some that you have to teach 
and then change are this, something like the liturgy. It, that takes a lot of time to learn. It's, it, for a congregation coming from contemporary worship with screens and clapping and a praise band, it's going to take them a lot of time. I can't just put a hymnal in their hand and expect them to be able to read the notes and figure out what good hymns and liturgy are. So that's going to take a long, long, long time. And I'll talk about how I did that a little bit later. Um, hymnody, the same thing. Hymns take a long time. That's a generational thing. Oh, my mother sang this hymn to me. And that's why they like the hymn. That's, if it's a superficial reason, uh, maybe they're not paying attention to the words. But it takes a lot of time to say, these hymns say things. And they say the, the most beautiful things your ears will ever hear in this life are in our hymnal. They're written there in those words. And, but I need time to say that. I need time to open it up to you and show you. And um, again, you can't just switch all the hymns on day one because they, they won't be able to sing it. Um, another thing is like vestments too. And the, the, uh, a lot of the high church things in, in the liturgy, uh, that takes time. People have to get used to it. If they're used to seeing a pastor in jeans and a bow tie or something, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while for them to see him in a, cha, or, or a chasuble or an alb or cassock and surplus. So you, you have to teach on those things, and that takes time. They take a while because they take a long time to learn, and a lot of these things become very emotional, so you have to take time with the congregation. Uh, and the liturgy takes a long time to appreciate and understand. <clears throat> An analogy I, I oftentimes use is like, there were those Marvel movies, the good ones, uh, the, the first phase that came out, and then it ended up with Endgame. And there were like 20, it was a string of 21 or 22 movies. Now, if, you, if somebody just walked in at the very last movie, um, they would have no idea what's going on. They would see one guy pick up a hammer and they say, and everybody starts clapping and cheering. And another guy says one phrase and everybody starts weeping. And one guy snaps his fingers and everybody gasps. So you'll see that and you're like, I'm lost. I don't know what this is. But in order to appreciate the final movie in that whole series, you had to have watched the first 20 movies, right? And then finally that last one will make sense. Well, in the same way, that's how the liturgy is. Uh, you can't just appreciate the nunc dimittis just because. Um, you have to know the context. The, the Lord was, this is, Jesus was born. This was promised to, um, uh, to, to, to Simeon. And so these are the words that he sang. And th- we sing them at the end of the service before uh, we depart. And just like Simeon sang these before he, he departed. Um, but it takes time to teach that. So these are examples of things that, yes, they're worth teaching, but you can be patient with them. So don't become impatient and, and, and force it. It takes a lot of time. The other kind of issue is one that has to change first and then teach. Um, sometimes it's too dangerous to wait. For example, my son will uh, reach over to an outlet with his finger. I, I have to scream. I have to tell him. I have to smack his hand away and say, you can't do that. And you got to stop because I don't have time to explain to him how electricity works and how nerves work and how it's going to hurt him a lot if he does this. So you have to immediately jump to it and say, nope, don't do this. This is going to hurt you. So 
One of these issues is something like women lectures. Um, this is something that is so obviously clear in the scriptures. First Timothy 2.12, 1 Corinthians 14.34. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach in a church. Um, these, are, these are the words of Holy Scripture. Um, and this is a change that needs to happen right away. And then you can teach later. You have to say, we have to stop this now, but I'm going to tell you why. And I'll bear with you. And I want you to hear what the Scriptures say. And this isn't because women are inferior. This isn't because God doesn't like women. That's not the case. Listen to what the words say. I do not permit this. Who wrote the scriptures? Right? This is the word of God. Um, another issue is something like open communion. You have to say, look, this is, this is a priority. Uh, fine, we'll deal with some bad hymns here and bad liturgical practices, but open communion is something that has to be addressed right away. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 11 says there is a detriment to receive it in an unworthy manner. And so you want to protect your people. You need to teach them the urgency of that. Things like unionism or syncretism, um, having pastor, uh, uh, pastors of different confessions or even religions come in uh, and teach. This is, this is wrong. That has to be, you have to stop that right away. Um, the reason you do is because the longer you wait to change those things, the worse it's going to get. Meaning their argument is going to come back to you and say, well, you were okay with these things before, so they must not be that big of a deal. If it's that dangerous, you've put it up with it for four years. Why are you addressing it now? Right? Why, why, why today? So these are things that you have to go in and say, look, this is a very serious thing, and I know you don't understand this yet, and, but let me tell, give me time to tell you. Uh, have patience with me, and I'll tell you why I'd made this change. It, it's a radical change, fine. But, and you can think that I'm a mean guy. I don't care. But I'm telling you because I'm protecting you. The Lord's Supper is a powerful thing. It is the Lord himself who is there, and it is for the forgiveness of sins for those who believe, and it's judgment on those who do not, who, who, who cannot discern the body of Christ here. So we have to change certain things immediately to show the severity of those issues and, and those problems. Um, now, an anecdote here f- from Zion. Uh, one of the first issues I addressed there at Zion was uh, closed communion. And so I said, hey, we got to change this. And I made an announcement. This is what we're doing. And you have questions, talk to me. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to offer a Bible study for eight weeks um, on the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to teach you why I just did what I did. And just give me time to explain. I need about eight weeks to do that. And then it turned into six months <laughs> of, of teaching because there were so many questions and things. But, but it was good because we made the change right away. We changed the practice. And then I had time to teach why we did that. Um, I try to answer every question about it. And so that's why it turned into to six months. So what I'm saying here, maybe this is an extreme example, but it's better to be in a suit and tie while practicing closed communion than it is to be wearing a chasuble with incense and chanting the liturgy while having open communion, right? Um, Again, uh, you, you want the ideal, you want those things, but you have to understand that they come at different paces 
at different times. Vestments and chanting is a thing that'll come in time with enough teaching. Um, They're not the priority right away. Doctrine is, teach this, and then they will learn to appreciate the chanting and the liturgy and everything else. Then they'll learn to appreciate the hymns. Teach them the doctrine first. Okay, uh, fourth point, uh, teach your elders. You have to talk to your elders. Make that super important. Teach them very well. Teach them about upcoming changes. You should never surprise the elders about a change, a change in the hymns or a change in the liturgy. Um, you want to avoid surprises as much as possible. Even the congregation, you don't want to surprise them. If, if your board of elders is not on board, then the change is going to be nearly impossible. Uh, because here are the people who are the most educated in the congregation or supposed to be closest with the pastor. And if they're not on board or there's, there's dissent there, it's going to be chaotic. So you, you won't be able to um, teach the congregation unless you know how to teach your elders first. Uh, that, that's where you begin. Um, by the way, that meeting with the elders is the most important meeting of the entire church here. Your meetings with, with elders. Above finances, above trustees and all these things. So I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty strict when it comes to other meetings. I like it to be efficient. An hour, 15 minutes, hour, 30 minutes. Let's get this done. Let's keep moving. With the elders, I take my foot off the gas a little and slow down and let the meeting go long if it needs to be, two, maybe two and a half hours, because that's where a lot of the teaching happens. And I have to say, if you're not on board with this, I want to know why. why. Why don't you agree? Why is chanting a bad thing? Just tell me in your point of view. Or why, why shouldn't we sing this hymn or that? Um, and I'll take the time. And when your elders hear that, uh, they... They're knowing that their concerns are actually being um, addressed. And then when members of the congregation say, well, I have this concern, an elder can say, guess what? I had the same concern. And this is, this is what pastor told me. And this is what he talked about. So the, use them to your benefit. They're, they're there to help you uh, precisely for that. Um, and uh, a couple attributes, some of the best attributes for elders are, are these two, that they're teachable and that they can keep their composure. You, you don't want elders who, who break down or who raise their voice at things. You want ones who can keep their composure even in some of the most difficult things and who are willing to, to learn as well. And when there's conflict, which there is gonna be conflict on, on boards and with your elders, you deal with the conflict together like men. You have conversations with them and the conversations about things in the church ought to be done with all of the elders present. You don't want to have side conversations or meetings after the meeting. Have meetings at the meeting. That's, that's what it's for. So let, let that time uh, be there for that. Okay, and that's the fourth point, teaching the elders. The fifth point is addressing issues directly. Uh, the time will come when you have to say or do something that people don't like and you know people are against. And there's a time, once you've done all of your preparation and you've done all you could do, there comes a time when you have to just bite the bullet and do it. Um, yet you have to pace yourself, but you address it 
right away, you're prepared for the long run. And you have to have courage when speaking God's word. Uh, Sure, you have to work on how you say things, but don't let the fear of offending people or people being offended prevent you from saying what needs to be said. Um, the, the fear oftentimes is this, and this is a, a real fear that I've, I've had uh, even through, through nine years, is if I say this, then blank, this person is going to get angry and upset. Uh, and they're going to leave the church and this is going to affect other people and so on and so forth. Now, my, the response here is this. Yes, it may affect you. But once again, God will provide your daily bread and he will care for you. And the second thing, and this is probably the best advice I ever received on this. uh, A good friend and pastor told me, God's voice will never scare away his sheep. Um, John 10, 4 says, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. John 10, 16, they will listen to my voice. God's voice does not push away his sheep. If you're teaching doctrine, if you're teaching these things, the word of God, don't be afraid that the word of God, the voice of God is going to scare away his sheep. Those who are his sheep are going to hear it and they're going to run towards him. They're going to run towards that voice. Um, If someone is scared away by true doctrine, then what does that tell you? If, if they're afraid of God's word, what does that tell you? If they run away when you're quoting the scriptures to them, what is that saying? It's revealing something. So as, as pastors, we have to go into these things, you know, and be bold about it, right? For example, the issue of women lecturers or something like this. We just say what the scriptures say. Say that. You have the word of God uh, and speak those things. Okay, sixth thing, and this is... Um, an, a big point. Preach and teach. And it sounds very simple, um, but focus on your preaching because that is where the main change of the church and the congregation is going to come from. Uh, my, my, one of my professors, Dr. Naomichi Masaki from Fort Wayne, he preached at my ordination and that was, he was there at Zion when you saw it before. And he told me, yeah, there are a lot of problems. He said, but you focus and dedicate yourself to preaching the word of God and things will change. And that was his advice. Just make that the priority. Preach, preach, and teach. Pastors, you are the only ones who are allowed in the pulpit. Use the pulpit well. Use it very well for this. Uh, You've been placed into the office of the holy ministry. Don't of, of all things, don't get lazy in writing your sermons. It's a, temp, it's a constant temptation. Don't get lazy in writing your sermons. It, you're constantly preaching to different people. Even if it's the same congregation, you're preaching to different people. They are different. Their circumstances have changed from one Christmas to the next Christmas, from one year to the next year. Uh, things, things develop, things change. They're improving, they're worsening. Address those things from the pulpit. You are their pastor. That is the main and most effective and efficient form of pastoral care is going to come from the pulpit itself. Devote yourself to that. It's incredibly important. Um, Pour your heart and soul into every sermon. Uh, It's it's the most effective way of of bringing change. Um, 
the temptation is to become lazy and think like, well, nobody's listening. There isn't change coming. I, I, those thoughts were running through my head when I was preaching to eight people at one of the services. Like, what am I doing? I spent hours on a sermon and I preached to eight people. Um, but that, that's the temptation is to become discouraged about these things. Now, when it comes to teaching, uh, and this is advice for all people, but, and especially for pastors, use every medium available. So use the spoken word, the written word, the recorded word. Um, bring in other pastors who visit and have them preach the same thing that you just said and you've been harping on this whole time so they realize, hey, this isn't just pastor's quirk. This is actual theology. This is doctrine. Uh, because, and, and the reason you want to use every medium available is because there are some people in the congregation who will just read and that's how they learn. Others who will just listen. Others who need direct and private conversation and that's what's going to make the change. So you could write it on the bulletin. Nobody reads the bulletin. Uh, you, you say it in the, in the service, in the announcements. Nobody, somebody's not listening. Um, then you go and tell them directly. Okay, they finally listen. But people learn these things in different ways. So, for example, when it came to the women lectors at Zion, I addressed this issue on every platform available, every medium possible. So I spoke with the, uh, with the elders about it. I preached about it, I wrote about it, but I also went directly to those women who were reading the scriptures in church, and I told them, I said, we're making a change, and this is a, a change that I'm going to make, and I want to talk to you about it. Some of them were upset. Uh, others rejoiced, and when, when I showed them the word of God, they were happy, uh, and then they actually repented, and they said, I thought I was doing the right thing. All these years. I thought this is what, what was a good thing to be doing. And here, look at what the scripture says. It says the opposite. Thank you. Right? So it was like a big burden was lifted off their shoulders just to hear the word of God. And yeah, that private conversation bore fruit in a way that the written one didn't. So again, use, use those, uh, uh, use those uh, uh, mediums that are available. Now, look, the reality is you're going to preach and teach and do these things. And the truth is they may not listen. Um, they may not be listening. But if you stop preaching and teaching, then they can't listen. They have nothing to listen to. So just keep speaking it. Uh, just keep saying it. You've taken away the one thing to listen to. So the consistency here is, is key. Another thing, too, when it comes to teaching, this is... Again, uh, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's something, when you teach on something, you have to continue teaching on the thing that you taught and reinforce that later and more. Um, one of these things is something like hymnody. It's one thing if an organist or the choir director talks about hymnody and says, hymns are important. And most people are going to think, What? that, uh, well, you're saying that it's, it's important because you are the organist and you want it to be important. <laughs> um, or you, it, it's kind of self-serving, they'll think something like that. But when a pastor says, hey, hymnody is important, this is a very important stuff, and music is very important in the church, then people's ears open up because they say, well, this isn't self-serving. He's talking about something, something different here. 
Um, hymnody is part of the pastor's job. That is, an, that is a tool of teaching. It is important. Pastors of congregations, my advice to pastors of, of small congregations and congregations that don't sing like Zion didn't uh, before, you, you sing well, you learn to sing well. Anyone who can speak can learn how to sing uh, just with enough time. It takes practice. But a huge part of your job as a pastor is singing. That's what we do. That is a lot of what we do is music. It is that important. And you, uh, what, you, uh, what you could do is sing in Bible study. Open the Bible study with a hymn and introduce a hymn to the congregation. Uh, teach them there. Quote hymns in the sermon. Show them that this isn't just a pastime. These are words that we're saying that speak truth. Uh, sing when you visit the members. Uh, send hymns via email. You could record things. Send it out. Um, for pastors of small congregations, just leave your microphone on during the hymns so that everybody can hear you. That's what I did at Zion for a long time for the first probably year or so. I just left the microphone on and sang because nobody else was singing. And then finally, people, people joined in and it, and it worked. Um, one thing, we had a question before was on, uh, on hymnody. Uh, how did we go from a contemporary worship service with screens and a praise band to singing Lutheran chorales? What was the change? Um, obviously teaching on this, like I've been saying, but one tool that we used in the services was something that we called the hymn of the month. And what you do is this, is you take a list of faithful Lutheran hymns and you write them down and you say, it is ideal if my congregation would learn these hymns. Um, and what I did for a while is I made that hymn the last hymn of the service so that it would kind of stick in people's heads and they'd learn it. They could also... Um, uh, yeah, keep that in mind uh, and, and know that it was, anticipate that it was coming. One, one idea is this, is when you're looking at the month, so say the month of uh, September, um, it, and you want to introduce the hymn on the first Sunday of September, what I would do is I would look at the last Sunday of September and say, what's the hymn of the day for that Sunday? And then I'm going to make us sing that the whole time. And then that hymn would jump around in different places in the service, communion hymn, opening hymn. But then when it came to that Sunday, um, that hymn of the day was sung so you know, brilliantly, and the whole congregation knew it really well at that point. Um, so that's, that's just something to keep in mind. But the thing is, you give the organist time to learn it and practice these list of hymns, uh, teach the organist this is the tempo you want to play it. You don't want to play it too slow. You don't play this one too fast. Work with them on this. You tell the church about the, the hymn of the month. You introduce the hymn as a prelude, offered offering or postlude. And then you place it in different parts of the service. And if you use this method, you get through about 12 new hymns a year. Uh, and if you add Advent, Advent and Lent um, hymns for the midweek services. That's another two hymns. So it's about 14 hymns a year uh, that you're learning, that a congregation is learning, and they learn it well. Um, I did this with, with Zion, and we learned about 29 hymns in the span of uh, two years. And now it's to the point where we don't even do the, the hymn of the month anymore. 
because they know the hymns very well. They know all the melodies. And so I simply just pick hymns and now they know them and they sing them. Uh, so it, anyway, it's a, it's, that's how I was able to teach a lot of the hymns to Zion. Again, it was taken seven, eight years to get them to the point where they can open up the hymnal comfortably and just sing it. Uh, also, you want to add more hymns than you take away. Basically, crowd out the bad hymns just with good hymns. Um, just teach them so many good hymns that they forget the bad ones. Okay, uh, the seventh point, and this is, this is the crux of it that comes right after the sixth point, which is on teaching. Seventh is this, prepare to suffer and endure. Um, while the Holy Spirit does all the work, we indeed suffer very much for preaching it. In fact, I can't even tell you, I've had a few conversations here and there, um, but I can't even get into detail about the things that I dealt with in the meantime. The opposition, uh, the anger, the disrespect, um, the name calling, the slander, the threats, the issues on social media, um, not only from uh, visitors or members of the congregation, but from district officials, from my predecessor, uh, school workers, things like this. There was a lot, a lot of opposition. Um, and the, so, so I talked to pastors and I was uh, really uh, maybe even depressed, sad about these things. And uh, I talked to a pastor and he told me, uh, you need to read Martin Luther's sermon at Coburg on cross and suffering I said you, you got to read that just that was our conversation it was like four minutes he's like after i told him, he just says you got to read this and then he says call me later um so this is in luther's works volume 51 i'm just going to read some excerpts here but listen listen to what it says we must note in the first place that christ by his suffering not only saved us from the devil death and sin but also that his suffering is an example which we are to follow in our suffering Though our suffering and cross should never be so exalted that we think we can be saved by it or earn the least merit through it, nevertheless, we should suffer after Christ, that we may be conformed to him. For God is appointed that we should not only believe in the crucified Christ, but also be crucified with him. As he clearly shows in many places in the Gospels, he who does not take his cross and follow me, he says, is not worthy of me. And again, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Another excerpt. Very well, I, if I want to be a Christian, I must also wear the colors of the court. The dear Christ issues no other in his court. Suffering there must be. Again, our teaching is this, that none should dictate or choose his own cross and suffering but rather when it comes, patiently bear and suffer it. If you are willing to suffer very well, then the treasure and consolation which is promised and given to you is so great that you ought to suffer willingly and joyfully because Christ and his suffering is being bestowed upon you and made your own. And if you can believe this, then in the time of great fear and trouble, you will be able to say, even though I suffer long, very well then, 
What is that compared with the great treasure which my God has given to me, that I shall live eternally with him? Look what happens then. The suffering would be sweet and easy and no longer an eternal suffering, but only a modicum, which lasts only a short time and soon passes away as St. Paul and St. Peter and Christ himself says in the gospel. For they look to that great immeasurable gift, which is that Christ with his suffering and merit has become ours uh, altogether. Thus the suffering of Christ has become so mighty and strong that it fills heaven and earth and breaks the power and might of the devil and hell and of death and sin. And then if you compare this treasure with your affliction and suffering, you will consider it but small loss to lose a little property, a little honor, health, wife, child, and even your own life. But if you refuse to regard this treasure and to suffer for it, so be it. Go on and let it lie. He who does not believe will also receive none of these unspeakable goods and gifts. Here's some more quotes. I'll I'll finish up here. He says, we suffer because we hold to the word of God. Preach it, hear it, learn it, and practice it. For this is the Christian art which we must all learn all people, the art of looking to the word and looking away from all the trouble and suffering that lies upon us and weighs us down. Again, if you have affliction and suffering, say, I have not chosen and prepared this cross. It is because of the word of God that I am suffering and that I have and teach Christ. Again, This then is the true art that in suffering and cross, we should look to the word and the the comforting assurance and trust them. Even as he said, in me, you shall have peace, but in the world, tribulation. It is as if he were saying danger and terror will surely, um, surely hit you if you accept my word. But let it come. This will happen to you because of me. So be of good cheer. I will not forsake you. I'll be with you and help you. No matter how great the affliction may be, it will be small and light for you if you're able to draw such thoughts from the word of God. And finally, for this is the Christian art which we all must learn, the art of looking to the word and looking away from our trouble and suffering that weighs us down. That was some of the best advice that I had received in these times. Uh, was to read that sermon and read First Peter chapter three as well, um, and uh, even hearing uh, about the apostles that when they were flogged in Jerusalem, they left what rejoicing for that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Um, so, as as you teach, you don't take the opposition and the insults personally. You can't. As a pastor, you won't make it if you do that. If you begin to internalize it and, and make it your own, you're not going to make it. Uh, you cannot get emotional over them uh, and not respond in anger. When those things happen, you just pray immediately. You stop and you pray. In fact, I think the best advice for dealing with this comes from Paul Gerhardt's letter to his son, his last living son. Um, it, it's if you haven't read it, find it and read it. It is beautiful. But 
his, his second point in that letter is this. He says, son, never grow angry out of your office and calling. And he says, here's his practical advice from father to son. He says, if you find that anger has inflamed you, be perfectly silent and don't utter a word until you first repeated to yourself the Ten Commandments and the Christian Creed. Just do that uh, first. Don't count to ten. Just recite the commandments. Uh, say the creed before you respond. Uh, there's so many times I've wanted, had a gut reaction. I wanted to respond to things. But taking this advice and doing it by commandment five or six, I'm calmed down. I think differently. And I, I realize my own sin. Um, okay, point number eight. Be content. This is super important. Learn to be content in all things and especially in suffering. Uh, like, like I quoted Acts chapter 541, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Uh, Matthew chapter 511 says, Blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, I, I think with this, as pastors, we need to learn to be happy and joyful in our vocation and show that joy to others, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, we, we don't want to become covetous as pastors either. We don't... One of, one of the things that made me really sad is on, you know, uh, the, the, the year I got a call when we're all going to our, our, our congregations, everyone's taking pictures of their churches. They're like, look at this, look at the steeple, look at uh, uh, this. And they have their family in front of the altar and it's beautiful. And I didn't want to show, what is it? This picture. <laughs> I was embarrassed <laughs> to put that up. And say, well, look at this. Look, look where I got a call. Look at this sanctuary. The, the altar is on wheels. Uh, come on. Um, so, uh, so seeing that, I mean, being on social media, you just see kind of a highlight reel of everyone's life. And then you compare it to your own. But uh, the reality is we have to flee covetousness like hell. And focus and be content with what you have. I, I changed my mindset from that of saying, man, I wish I, I could be in this church. I wish I could be in that church. Man, that church is beautiful. Man, they have an organ. I would love that. To, I'm in a church, and I'm a pastor, and this is what God has called me to. To some, he's given more. He's given five talents to this one. This one, he gave two. This one, he gave one. I have one. But it's what he gave me. Um, I'm not going to bury it. So, as, as pastors, we have to be content with this, what, what the Lord has called us to. Um, uh, Philippians 4, 11 says, the, the, the Apostle Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
So as pastors, you have to change your mindset. As, as Christians, we have to change our mindset even going to church. And we have to be happy and content with the church that God has given us and the calling he has, he has given to us. Like I said before, I preached to eight people. At the time, I was sad that it was only eight people. And then I realized that's eight reasons to rejoice and be happy. That is eight more people than should be here. Um, could there be more? Sure. But in fact, there shouldn't be any here. Um, but the fact that eight have come is a joy. The same thing to, with, with schools and choirs. Okay, what? You have two voices, three people singing. That's three people singing. You should be happy for that. That's awesome. Do, do, do you know how, much, uh, how many problems there are in the world? How much persecution there is in the world? How, how many people ridicule and mock the church and the word of God? And yet these, people, these three people came and they're singing in our choir. That's great. You have a choir. Good. Be happy. Uh, our Sunday school is, has a few kids. Good. Good. They have a few kids. That's better than nothing. Uh, so we have to change our mindset to learn to be content in all these things. Obviously, we strive for more. We want more people to hear the gospel. But don't covet and become discontent with what you have because of what someone else has or what you think could be better. Um, don't, discourage, don't be discouraged with a few. The reality is that as pastors, we have the greatest job in the world. We make a living by reading the Bible and studying it day in and day out. I would do it for free. Um, and yet God has called me to be a pastor. I would, I would be doing this anyway. I'd be reading the scriptures anyway. Um, but here, the Lord has called us into this great and glorious vocation. It's a wonderful one, one that has a lot of opposition and very little thanks for it. But Christ is our, our, our reward if we labor faithfully. Um, those who preach the gospel get their living on the gospel. And so don't set these faulty expectations because that's going to ruin your joy. Um, the ninth point here is this. Be patient is my final point. Be patient and persistent. There is no time, uh, no time limit or rush for this. You wait for the Lord. Don't get upset when you don't see the results. Don't get discouraged when you don't see droves of people rushing in or when you see backlash or threats. Don't throw in the towel if uh, you don't see change. And don't stop writing your sermons well if you think people aren't listening. Uh, there's a great quote from St. John Chrysostom. He says this. It's, it's on persistence. He says, for a con what's... <clears throat> He says, for a continual dripping of water bores into a rock. And yet what is softer than water? And what is harder than rock? But nevertheless, the persistency overcame its nature. And if persistency overcomes nature, how much more will it be able to prevail over the will? So you, you stay consistent. You persist in these things. Um, there's nothing harder than the, 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 the human heart. The human heart is a rock, stubborn. 
And what is softer than the voice of the pastor speaking these words? And yet, through persistence, by preaching this word again and again, that is going to make its way, break the heart and, and renew it. Take out that heart of rock and replace it with a heart of flesh. You have to remember there's a time for everything uh, and, and nothing can prevent it from happening when that time comes. You can't force the issue or the change. It, it happens, you have to be patient. Impatience ruins it. Apathy will never begin. Um, but when it's time for building, when it's time for teaching, then all of the apparent obstacles are going to make their way when it's time for that. Uh, by the way, if you're going through transition in a, in a church and um, a building, shrinking, whatever it might be, God is always going to give you the resources that you need for what you're supposed to be doing in that moment. Uh, if you don't have the resources to move forward and build, then you have enough resources to wait, right? And if you're supposed to be moving forward, then you'll have the resources to move forward. Uh, these things will give way. And nothing can stop it when the Lord does it. Um, now, we're at the end here, but I want to tell you why I titled this paper the way I did. Um, I got the title from Matthew 25, the text that uh, Pastor Wright preached on today. The master goes on a journey. To one, he gives five talents. To one, he gives two talents. To one, he gives one talent. And the scripture says, to each according to his ability. And the one with five talents made five more talents. And the one with two talents made two more talents. And the one with one talent buried it. And the master returns and he goes to the first and the second one. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And the third one, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, the point is this. This isn't a parable about three different servants. It's a parable about two kinds of servants, faithful and unfaithful. The first two were faithful. The third one was not. In fact, uh, the, the first two were faithful. The third one was unfaithful. He was slothful. He was wicked. I, I think that his opinion uh, that he thought his master was a mean guy came from what he received from the master. So he receives one talent and he says, this guy doesn't care about me. He cares more about these people. He's given them more things. And to me, he's given so little. Um, and so he has this opinion of, of his master, whatever it might be. Um, but, the, but the third one, uh, that uh, third servant, the difference isn't that he did too little with his talent. And it's not that he, or that t servants one and two accomplished more, or that the third one accomplished less. It's not that number three didn't do too, uh, did, did too little. It's simply that he accomplished nothing. He was just completely unfaithful. Here's the point. The amount that the master gives them at the beginning is according to their own ability, which the master knows. And so what does that imply? What does that mean? That the one who had one talent had what? The ability to handle it. He actually had the ability to make that into two talents. 
That's what, that's what it's saying. He had the ability to do that. And he was, he, but he was unfaithful and full of fear and slothful. And the master gave him a little. And still that person, that servant, thought it was way beyond his ability to do something with it. He said, I can't do anything with this. This is nothing. And I, I, I can't accomplish anything. Um, this is my point in, in teaching this. You all have different vocations. You'll have different abilities and skills. But what you have before you is what the Lord has given to you precisely because he knows to who to give it to you. <laughs> he gave it to you and not to another. He knows your ability before you know your ability. And so he gave this to you. He gave you the work for you to do. If he's given you children, then he, he knows your ability to take care of those children. If he gives you one children, that's the child you needed. If he gives you 10 children, he will give you the ability to take care of those children and he will take care of them with you too. And the same thing with the church. If he's given you a great, grand, big, glorious church, wonderful. You can handle it. The Lord knows your ability. That's why he called you there. And if he gives you a small one and give, gives you a big boulder to roll up the hill and a lot to go through, you can handle it because the Lord is with you. Um, although I told you the story of one particular congregation, I also know that what happened at Zion may not happen everywhere else. I'm not naive or blind. Uh, the history of my church is not a prophecy about your church uh, because God hasn't made that particular promise that everyone will have the same ending as Zion. But God calls pastors to preach the word faithfully in and out of season. And because the Holy Spirit works when and where he pleases through the word, sometimes we see the fruit of our labor and sometimes we don't because the Holy Spirit works when and where he pleases. But don't grow weary or faint. Don't get discouraged. However, my point as a pastor to other pastors and to all of you who labor in the church is to remain faithful because faithfulness is always rewarded by the Lord. Faithfulness is always rewarded by the Lord. Sometimes it is rewarded in this life, but it is always rewarded in the life to come, in the resurrection. You may see God bless your work in nine years, or you may not. But you will see the Lord's work in the resurrection, ultimately. And that is up to the Lord. You simply, you simply concern yourself with what he's given you to do. This is from the solid declaration on election of the Lutheran Confessions. It says, without any doubt, God also knows and has determined for everyone the time and hour of his call and conversion. God knows down to the very specific details of it. But this time has not been revealed to us. Therefore, we have the command to always to keep proclaiming the word, entrusting the time and hour of conversion to the Lord. God has entrusted you what you have now, big or small, much or little, many or few, according to your ability. So labor well as a faithful servant. And the one who called you to be faithful over a little will set you over much. Amen.